This is Curl Up with a Cat Tale, and I'm Gwen Cooper, the New York Times bestselling author of numerous cat-centric titles, including Homer's Odyssey, A Fearless Feline Tale, or How I Learned About Love and Life with a Blind Wonder Cat, Spray Anything, More True Tales of Homer and the Gang, and The Book of Possum, Head Bonks, Raspy Tongues, and 101 Reasons Why Cats Make Us So, So Happy. We're here to celebrate all things feline and to tell inspirational cat tales. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of Curl Up with a Cat Tale with Gwen Cooper. I am, of course, Gwen Cooper, your host, and just delighted, as I always am, to be here with you today. I am particularly delighted because we had a little bit of a scare with Clayton over the course of the past week since last I spoke with you. And and I do mean a little bit of a scare. And I think it's something that, that those of you listening who have lived with cats for a long time will appreciate. Um, because sometimes it's very clear that there is something very wrong with your cat. Um, all of a sudden, your cat will not eat or is throwing up and will not stop throwing up or or is demonstrating that they are in pain. And you may not know exactly what is causing these symptoms, but clearly something is wrong and some sort of intervention is called for. And that's almost a blessing. I mean, not it's certainly not a blessing when your cat is unwell, but when it's very, very clear that something is wrong, the, the clarity is kind of a blessing because the alternative, of course, is a situation where you think something is wrong, but the signs and symptoms are so subtle that you're not sure, A, if you're just making it up in your own head and, and seeing things that aren't there, or B, even if what you're noticing is actually there, if it rises to the level of requiring emergency medical intervention. And I should also say that obviously if you are teetering on the brink of, of course, you should bring your cat to the vet, which I was set to do with Clayton. Um, I will also note that because Clayton actually likes going to the vet's office, I probably don't need to be as circumspect with him as I am with my other cats, because generally, if I'm on the fence, I, I try to lean toward not going to the vet for at least a couple of days because so many things do resolve themselves. And of course, there's just nothing more miserable for a cat, for most cats who are not Clayton, who is weird. Uh, for most cats, it's a trip to the vet's office. And of, of course, that's what the vet is for when your cat is sick and, and you know, or, or just for annual exams to keep your cat well and blah, blah, blah. But you understand what I'm saying. You don't want to go to the hassle and trauma of dragging your cat to the vet if it turns out that there's really nothing wrong and, you know, you were just sort of seeing things that weren't there. The point being that that's the situation that I was in with Clayton for several days. It was so subtle. Um, you know, the kind of thing where Lawrence told me I was worrying for no reason. And then I'm just sort of left with, but but I see things in the cats. I, I notice things that you don't. And, and he sometimes notices things that I don't, by the way. But again, between the two of us, I'm probably the one who is more attuned to the cats and to their day-to-day behavior and to the subtleties in, in in behavioral changes. So here's what was going on with Clayton. Um, he just seemed for a few days 
a little more tired than usual, and, and it can be tough to tell with a cat because cats obviously spend so much of their time sleeping anyway. But I will say that Clayton, by cat standards, is almost an insomniac. I mean, he spends plenty of time sleeping, but he spends less time sleeping, or or maybe it's more accurate to say that he tends to sleep less soundly than any of the other cats I've ever lived with and most other cats that I've seen. Um, and the reason that I say that is because Clayton kind of, he, he follows me over the course of the day. When I come upstairs, if I'm upstairs long enough, Clayton will follow me. Um, if I'm working downstairs and if I go to sit at my desk and he's sleeping on the couch, he will kind of come over to where my desk is and and lie down on the rug near the desk. And and he's also just kind of, you know, for, for, for a chubby little three-legged dude, he gets around a lot and he's always a little hyper. Um, and so for a few days, he, he was spending a lot more time sleeping and he was not following me around the house. He was not as playful. And also th this was the thing that was really concerning to me. Every time I touch Clayton or if I walk into him and I say, Clayton, he goes, Brr, you know, he makes that Brr sound, that, that, that kind of cooing sort of sound that, that cats make. Every time if he's lying on his side sleeping and I, and I put my hand on his belly, he goes, Brr, and, and it's just his way of acknowledging me. Again, Clayton always wants to acknowledge attention he's receiving in the hopes that he will get more of it. And, and he was not doing that. I, I mean, if I touched him or I petted him, he, he would, you know, kind of look over at my hand or sometimes he didn't wake up at all. And this is all very concerning to me. And, and to tell you the truth, what was most concerning to me was the thought that there might not even be anything wrong with Clayton per se. But Clayton, of course, now is, oh my God, he's 11 years old. He's 11 years old, which is just still astonishing for me to realize. I really, Clayton and Fanny are are like still the new cats in in my mind. Um, I don't mean that they have not fully integrated into our family or or into my heart, but you know what I mean. Um, they are my younger generation. They are the the new kids on the block. They they're still kittens. <laughs> they're still kittens. How are they eleven years old? How could they possibly be eleven years old when they're still kittens? But this is what I was afraid of that maybe it's it was just age starting to catch up with Clayton, and and that's still a possibility. Of course, as I'm sure you've already foreseen. The ending of this story is that within a few days, Clayton was essentially back to normal um, or, you know, as as normal as Clayton ever is. So I am not sure if there was anything wrong or maybe he was just a little more tired than usual for a few days or, or maybe for a few days he just didn't feel like going Brr, when I touched him. I don't know, but he seems to be better now. So I'm not going to schedule a, a spontaneous vet visit ahead of his annual, which is coming up fairly soon. Um, I'm assuming, again, that this is something that, that everyone has has dealt with at some point. Again, you know, I'm always, always curious to hear what you guys have to say. Leave comments in the comment section or shoot me an email. Um, yeah, you know, this is uh, one of those cases where, where the benefit of the wisdom of other cat moms and dads definitely comes in handy. Because I also don't want to make Clayton miserable by by hovering over him too much. Fanny, of course, was 
delighted somewhat that, that Clayton was a little bit out of commission for a few days because then Fanny, who is, you know, a little she's a little bit shy. She's not nearly as outgoing as Clayton is, but she does also love getting attention. She is just not prepared to compete with Clayton Ford. And Clayton, I am I am sorry to say, very often sees it as a competition. And and sometimes he will go so far as to chase Fanny out of the room, which is distressing to me on a number of levels. But but Fanny, I guess, was kind of the real winner for the last few days because with Clayton sticking closer to that one spot on the couch that he likes, it kind of gave Fanny a little bit more of a free run throughout the house. So, of course, I, I guess that that is just to go and show that every cloud does, in fact, have a silver lining um, again, this always brings me back to the idea that I wish sometimes that or I think sometimes that Clayton and Fanny would have done better in a larger family, um, you know, with with more people around to give them attention. Although it does it, again, fairness does compel me to point out that that Fanny, both Fanny and Clayton get plenty of attention. And Fanny does. I, I, I guess Clayton sucks up more of my attention, but Fanny definitely gets more of Lawrence's attention, and and they are just not attention-starved cats. But here I am, always feeling that I could be doing something better or more for them. Again, I'm guessing that some of you listening to this probably have felt the same way. I think it's just like the vestigial tale of of the uh, all the 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 Jewish guilt that I was raised with. You know, this constant feeling that I could be doing more and better. And, you know, the vague sensation that that I'm kind of screwing things up. Um, really, it, it, these are just the waters in which I swim. So perhaps I am imagining things in, in my making things up in my head. Um, and speaking of guilt, I, I'm feeling um, a little guilty, a little confessional today. I, I have a story to tell that I'm not going to that I'm Sort of, I, I mean, embarrassed maybe is the wrong word, uh, but that I'm not necessarily looking to tell all my my friends and associates, but but that I feel like I can share with you, my listeners, because we we share so much and we tell each other personal stories. Because um, I, I I did kind of a bad thing a few days ago, a bad thing that I've actually never done before. And I will tell you what it is, although first I have to give it a little bit of a setup. So I was reading an article in the newspaper um, about a residential hotel in New York City. And there are six or seven tenants in this residential hotel who have been there for, for decades. They men who rent a, a single room, an, an SRO, single room occupancy, and you know, New York has all of these sort of Byzantine rent control laws, but there are specific laws that apply to SROs and how frequently and how, to, you know, by what percentage you are allowed to raise the rent for monthly tenants. Obviously, people who moved in two or three decades ago are paying not very much in rent as, you know, they they are paying something more in line with what they would have paid 20 or 30 years ago, because again, the rent increases can only be so much on SRO rooms. So I was reading an article about this one residential hotel that does have SRO rooms and has, uh, you know, six or seven long-term residents who have been there for more than 10 or 15 years. And there's one case of one man, he is 83 years old, 
He moved in 30 years ago with his mother. His mother has died in the interim, obviously. He is now in his 80s. And the room was originally rented in her name. But after she died, and she died like 25 years ago, and he not only took over paying the rent, but he has paid it in person, in cash, every month for the last 25 years. There, there is a point to this story. I promise you this, is, this does tie in with the bad thing that I did. So I, I was reading this article about how this hotel is now, the, the city, um, and you may have heard in the papers that there's been a large influx of, of migrants into New York City and some question as, as to where all of these migrants can be sheltered and housed. And so one solution um, has been to put some of them, some of these migrants, into these residential hotels and to pay the owners of the hotels market rates for the room. And to make a long story short, the room that this man is in, that he pays five or $600 a month for, and again, keep in mind, this is a room. It, it is a room with a bathroom down the hall. There is no kitchen. It's not a studio apartment. It's a room in a residential hotel. Um, and the hotel would stand to get $6,000 a month from the city for this room. And so they are trying very, very hard to evict this 83-year-old man, to, to simply put him out on the streets after 30 years of living there. And they're trying to do so on the technicality that the room was rented in his mother's name and they had no idea that his mother was dead and that he had taken over the paying of the rent since then. Because again, you know, the, the I mean, the New York state, like most states, does not like people to be homeless if it can be avoided. And so, you know, the just by virtue of having lived in a certain place for a certain amount of time, provided you have not done anything illegal, um, you have certain protections, even aside from the protections for standing room, you know, SROs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they've given him 10 days to to leave, an 83-year-old man, at, on a very fixed income who is, I don't know where he, you know, would find someplace in this price range where he could live, and again, they're doing so. This this is the technicality that they're hanging their hat on. That yes, technically they they couldn't send him, at, you know, force him out if he were there legally. But they had no, they did not know. They're not even saying that he didn't change it because again, he's been there twenty five years. So if they have known for twenty five years that he's the, I mean, he's been there for thirty years, paying the rent himself in his name for twenty five. So if the hotel can be said to have known that this was the case and let it go on for 25 years. They cannot now claim that it's a problem and kick him out. So they are saying that they never knew, even though this man has been paying his rent in person, in cash, for 25 years. Anyway, um, I, you know, certain things really hit me on a certain level. Obviously, anybody listening will understand that that anything that that is even in the suburbs, <laughs> I was going to say anything that borders on cruelty or unkindness to animals, um, anything that is even in the neighborhood, anything that is even a suburb of cruelty or unkindness to animals is is something that makes me very, very angry. Um, I also feel that way about mistreatment of the elderly 
And part of that, I mean, maybe that's because I grew up with my grandmother living with me and she was very much a second mother to me. Um, you know, I, I understand she was only one elderly person. I, 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 do, I, I don't know why it hits me on the level that it does. But I do have a the very simple philosophy that people who are not kind to the elderly, people who are unkind to the elderly, don't go to heaven. Um, I don't know that I believe in an actual literal heaven, uh, but I am confident that if there is one and you are unkind to the elderly, you are not going to it. Uh, but when I say that that people who are unkind to the elderly don't go to heaven, what I mean to say is that you can you can be a good person and you can be unkind to an elderly person or to the elderly in general, but you cannot be both of those things at the same time. You can be unkind to any number of people for any number of reasons, but if you don't have it within yourself to smile at an old lady that you see on the street, then you're probably not as good a person as you'd like to think you are. Again, this is my very simple philosophy. And, and you know, I believe that we all should be actively kinder to the elderly. Even just, I mean, if you see an old woman in front of you in line at the grocery store, smile at her. You will probably make her day. Probably no one smiles at her or not enough people are smiling at her. Um, but at a minimum, you should certainly refrain to from harming the elderly. And I'm sure you see where I'm going with this. I read this story and this poor old man, and he's 83 years old, he gave him 10 days to get out he, he with, with no money and no place to go, a place where he's been living for 30 years, where he lived with his mother before she died. And it, you know, it, it made me very and, – and they have so many rooms in the hotel, and I understand corporations are always trying to maximize their profits. It's one room. He's one guy. Come on. Um, anyway, so I found, I mean, they, they had a, a quote or actually they had the name of the lawyer who is, who represents the building and who is trying to push the eviction through the court system. And she, she had no comment for the article, but they did give her name and give her name and a very simple Google search immediately returned her profile page on the law firm where she works, along with her email address. Now, here's where I will say that that I have been online since 1996. I have had my, I got my first email account and it was a work-related email account, but I got my first related email account actually in 1995. So that is nearly 28 years ago, nearly 30. And in that entire time, and I have made like everybody else of my generation, you know, the, the internet and email were new tools for a while. We made mistakes. You know, I CC'd someone. I, I hit reply all when I should have just replied to one person. Um, there's been the occasional embarrassment of, of saying something that I thought I was only saying to one person and that I was actually saying to a bunch of people and maybe, you know, uh, on occasion, although I don't think that actually this ever happened to me, but you know, that thing where you hit reply all to comment about one person who's on the chain and really you just meant to only talk to one person. So now the person you were talking about sees the email that you sent about them. I don't know if that's ever happened to me, but it is a very common thing that's happened to everybody. Certainly, I have had my share of angry emails with friends and family and coworkers and boyfriends, current and ex, where I deliberately sent a, an angry email saying, you did this and you did that and, and I'm so mad. Um, 
I, I didn't actually say rah, 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 but <laughs> in print, but you understand what I'm saying. The, the usual litany of complaints, although I don't do that very much anymore. Um, but certainly early on, you know, oh, these long, earnest emails about my feelings and, and how my feelings were hurt. And, and again, the sort of thing I think we all did a little bit more 20 years ago than we probably do now. But one thing that I have never done, I have absolutely never done, is send either anonymously or under my own name um, a hate email to someone. I've never sent hate mail via email or regular mail. I've never sent hate mail. I've never just written to someone and said, you know, you suck or or some version of you suck or or anything like that or I'm going to come find you or you better watch your ass or, or you know. Nothing like that. I, I have never, ever sent um, a hate email until until a few days ago when I read this article and I decided to send my first hate email to someone. I, I, I cannot tell you what possessed me except that I was so angry about this this poor man. Um. I could not find any information about any kind of a GoFundMe or or anything that was being done to to raise money or to try to help him out. Although I certainly hope that publishing the article has has produced some sort of assistance for him that might not have been there before. But I did find the email address for this lawyer, and um, I could not help it. I could not help myself. Or, or maybe it's more accurate to say that I didn't want to help myself. And and so I sent her a hate email. Um, it was very short. I will tell you exactly what it said. Um, the subject line was, you're a vile human being, which I guess nobody ever likes to hear about themselves. Um, and the message was very short and to the point. And it said, the next time something truly awful happens to you, remember this. You 100% deserve it. And I underlined, italicized, and bolded 100% because I really wanted to emphasize you 100% deserve it. Um, I signed it. I signed it best, Gwen Cooper. And I sent it from Gwen at GwenCooper.com because having decided to send my first hate email, I was not going to send it anonymously because that's cowardly. Um, I, I don't even know, you know, I mean, honestly, especially after a story like this in the Times, the, the woman must have been getting flooded with with hate email um, from people like me, and she probably didn't even open it and just instantly deleted it. Um, I can, you know, I, I, I do have some experience, although I had never sent a hate email before, I have received plenty of hate email Um you know, people who don't like Homer, who don't like the books, who don't like me, who think I was a terrible person because when I first moved in with Lawrence, you know, for the first year or so, we we did not let Homer sleep in the bedroom, although eventually Homer got to sleep wherever he wanted. You know, th- this is on I, – I can't relitigate the, these things or decisions that I made for my family, you know, back in 2005, which I still 100% believe worked out for the best, but the point being – um, you know, you write a story about your life. When people don't like the story or parts of the story, what they don't like is you and decisions that you have made. And there's always going to be some percentage of these people who will let you know. I have been called a see you next Tuesday on Goodreads. Uh, that was was an interesting experience. 
I'll tell you, actually, though, when I've gotten the most hate mail, interestingly, surprisingly, dispiritingly, um, was after my interview with Charlotte Maxwell Jones. And some of you hopefully will remember Charlotte Maxwell Jones as the founder and and still current um, executive director operator, runner, whatever you want to call it, of Kabul Small Animal Rescue in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, during the evacue, I mean, it, it, you can go back and, and look up or listen to my interview with Charlotte um, to hear uh, about what happened with her, with the animals in her care, following or during and following the immediate aftermath of, of the American withdrawal from Afghanistan, um, which is now Taliban controlled and and where Charlotte remains for the simple reason she says that that there is nobody else to do this work, that if she leaves, there is nobody else to save these animals. Uh, and which is very probably true for a number of reasons. Um it is an incredible thing that she is doing. I, I still, it still awes me. And, and to say that it humbles me is really an understatement. I mean, it floors me. It, it just floors me. Um, what was really astonishing was, was the sheer volume of, of hate. Now, most of it directed towards her. Uh, there, there, you know, she's gotten a lot of attention for the work that she's done, both for, for media and online. And there is this real diehard contingency of people for whom it seems to be very important to for them to believe that she's actually a terrible person, that she is there in Afghanistan for her <laughs> rescuing animals for her own enrichment. Now, I know what those of you who work in animal rescue are thinking as you listen to this, like, okay, sure. Running an animal shelter is basically like owning a printing press that allows you to print your own money. Everybody knows that. But is it really as lucrative to do so in Afghanistan as it is here in the United States? And I guess the answer to that question in the minds of some people is it's even more lucrative if you're doing it in Afghanistan than if you are in the United States. And yes, I understand that they are trying to make some sort of a point that she is embezzling money or 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 something. They are suspicious about how she's using the money that is sent to her. But you guys, she she lives in in flipping Afghanistan. I of all the places in the world where I would go to spend ill-gotten money without anyone even raising an eyebrow. Like if I all of a sudden told you guys, hey, I'm going to go spend a week in Paris, who would think anything of it? If I had gotten that money in some sort of disreputable way, who would know the difference? I the point being, I can think of many enjoyable places on the face of this big, beautiful earth we live in where it would be super fun to spend a lot of money, especially if you're the kind of person who doesn't care how you get that money. Um, I really, really feel, and granted, I have never been to Afghanistan. I've never been to Kabul. Um, it just seems to me like <laughs> it would not be one of those places, to say the least. Again, even assuming that, you know, she is reaping in untold riches running a small animal shelter in Kabul. Uh, you know, I, I really think that the reason why there, there seem to be so many people so just agitated by by the fact of the mere fact of this woman's existence is that, you know, and, and, and sometimes, sometimes, right, I, I would think for most of us, 
most of the time when you hear a story about an extraordinary person doing extraordinary things that that you know not even that deep down like you know pretty close to the surface like damn i could never in a million years do that i will tell you right now i mean i this is me now telling you right now um i could never in a million years live in afghanistan rescuing animals i could not do it even if it were completely physically safe to do so it just to me there's nothing about about afghanistan that makes it an appealing place for me to visit much less to live um at even knowing how animals there suffer because there are not enough people like those of us listening to this show now there to to help them um even knowing that, I just I I could not do it. it. It is far beyond the limits of 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 in terms of of heroism and commitment to the cause. It is far beyond the limits of what I personally am capable of. Um, and and I think for most of us listening w- would probably agree. Even those who who work in es- in rescue who are so committed to rescue, we don't go into war zones. We don't go into third world nations. We do the best that we can here while also living lives with our families and loved ones in a civilized first world nation. Um, and that is not at all to – I mean, th- there is work that needs to be done here too. And I think for all of us though, and this is the point that I'm making, for all of us listening to this podcast, right, it doesn't make us feel better bad it makes us feel we we it is inspiring to us to know that whatever our own limitations may be there are people out there who supersede those limitations who rise above them and who do and accomplish incredible seemingly unaccomplishable things i not i mean not only do i enjoy knowing that i actually depend on knowing that to tell you the truth but i i do find it incredibly inspiring it it makes me feel good to hear about somebody like charlotte maxwell jones to 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 hear about the work that she's doing to give her even a small 10 dollar donation makes me feel good um it makes me feel good to know that there are people like her in the world but i think there's a certain subset of human beings who are made to feel bad when they hear that, like, they don't want to believe that somebody could be that heroic or or that pure of intention or or that strong of spirit and character because it makes them feel bad about themselves. It makes them feel diminished. It makes them feel less. And so they look for the reason why the person is not really as great as they seem to be, not really as heroic, not really as committed, whatever the case may be. Um, and... I heard from a lot of those people after I interviewed Charlotte. Um, interestingly, I don't even think most of them listened to the interview because they they made they made comments that indicated as much that that they were criticizing the fact that I had spoken with her without actually listening to the conversation. Um, and I don't even mind the criticism, but but some of the emails were were definitely hateful. So I do I, bringing this back around. I do know a little something about how it feels to to get hate mail. And it doesn't bother me tremendously. It used to bother me a little bit more than it does. It, it's never a particularly pleasant part of my day, but it, it does. It, it, I guess at this point, it pretty much rolls off my back. I, it certainly, I, it was good to know that a lot of people had listened to my interview with Charlotte. By the way, the people who wrote nasty emails to me after my interview with Charlotte were not regular listeners of the show. And and here's the like here's the crazy part, right? They were people 
who obviously follows Charlotte on social media and so knew that I had interviewed her for my podcast. Um, and so without listening to the podcast or or really, you know, they, they just went to my website, got the contact and whatever, emailed me. But the point being, if you hate her so much, why are you following her on social media? Like if it bums you out that much to see the incredible selfless doings of a person like this, then then why why are you hate following her on social media? Why are you subjecting yourself to the misery of constant exposure to the doings of a person uh, you you don't like and and whose work you don't respect. Again, one of one of the reasons why I just find it infinitely easier to spend time with my cats because at least with a cat you know where you stand, right? You know why they do. The, I mean, you maybe don't always know why they do the things they do, but cats at least have the good sense to avoid the things that they hate. And and were there social media for cats, I don't think they would be following other cats who made them feel bad about themselves but I don't want to get too far into silliness. Um, I don't know. I don't know how this woman took the the hate email that I sent her. It's the first and only hate mail that I've ever sent. I don't feel great about it. I am certainly not bragging about it. Um, I actually kind of feel that in doing this, I, you know, there was a dark side that I, for many, low these many years have resisted turning to. And and now all of a sudden I have, I have, I have joined the dark side. I have seen something. I have allowed anger to push me to the point that I sent somebody a hate email. And however rotten what this woman is doing is, however rotten her business may be, I probably have not added to the general weight of goodness in the world by sending her a nasty email. But I, in the moment that I sent it, I really did want her to understand that that she was a bad person who deserves bad things to happen to them because I feel, you know, bad things happen to all of us. Um, there, there's just no getting around that. We we live our lives, we live in this world, and occasionally, I mean, not, none, of us, none of us gets out unscathed and nobody gets out alive, right? So eventually something bad's going to happen to you. Um, in my experience, when bad things happen, if you feel that you in some way deserve it or that you have brought it on yourself, it, it makes that bad feeling that much worse, at least for me. And I guess I was kind of hoping that that maybe at some point, you know, when something bad does happen to her, she would flash back to this email that I sent her and, and say, wow, you know, may, maybe I really am a bad person. But I, you know, that is a ridiculous fantasy because, of course, I'm not going to send an email to anybody that is going to make them have some sort of epiphany like my whole life has been rotten. I should start doing good things now. And even if I could send an email that would have that effect on somebody, it's probably not going to be the hate email that I sent. Um so there you have it. I I did kind of a bad thing that I don't think served any particularly good purpose. It 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 just gave me a a momentary feeling of of being powerful because it was, you know, I'm I'm reading this and I felt so powerless to do anything to help this man. Um and I think that was also part of what motivated me to send the email was it it made me feel for a second like there was something I could do even though I really was not doing anything that was helpful to anybody except for myself momentarily so there you go that is uh this week's confession they say confession is good for the soul I I have confessed it to you 
And I should probably get going before I start talking about the whatchamacallit um, that I shoplifted in fourth grade on my way to Hebrew school, uh, because that that is its own whole story. I, I actually I felt guilty for years about that, about that whatchamacallit, although too afraid to go in and admit what I had done and pay for it. So, yeah, perhaps the the lesson that I should have learned was not entirely learned, although I, I, I did learn at a young age that it feels very, very bad to steal and and not to do it again. Um and with that, I am going to say goodbye for now. Um, next time we meet, it will be Memorial Day weekend for those of you who are a part of my Patreon. It will be after Memorial Day weekend for those of you who are not a part of my Patreon community. So have a wonderful, wonderful holiday weekend. Thanks so much for listening. And please be sure to join me again next week for another all new episode. And that concludes this episode of Curl Up with a Cattail with Gwen Cooper. Don't forget to invite your feline-loving friends to listen to new episodes along with you. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, find out how to get your name and your cat's name included in my next book, or leave comments or questions for me to answer in future podcasts, head on over to GwenCooper.com now. Thanks so much for joining me, and don't forget to hug your cat today. <laughs>